We look at the tailwinds of the industry, which is continued capital and investment in the industry. And then you look at the amount of space and the that's really on the horizon. And it still you know, signals that you've got a tremendous amount of demand. We might have to update some facilities over time um, or put some additional investment in the space, which is why the return is attractive. We're willing to make that investment in the space for the second generation or third generation tenant and really drive the returns for our owners, but also you know, provide the state-of-the-art, state-of-the-market lab buildings as they're doing their research and their needs change. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a conversation with Tim Schoen, the CEO of Biomed Realty, a Blackstone company, and one of the industry's leaders in life sciences and technology-focused real estate. Tim joined the company as CEO when Blackstone took the company private in 2016. We interviewed the former CEO of Biomed, now the executive chairman of IQHQ, Alan Gold, back in November of 2020. One of the pleasures of Leading Voices, and frankly, one of the pleasures of my day job in search at CRG, is getting to know leaders of companies in disparate corners of the real estate business, and drilling down to get to know the drivers and dynamics of those businesses, especially in these fascinating niches, each of which has such a different business model, different customer base, and really different specialty skills within the team to make it a market leader, not just a dabbler in their business. That's the conversation with Tim, and you hear it in the discussion. Yes, he's a deeply experienced real estate and capital markets professional, but now he's also a true business leader within the biotech field, which has its own fascinations. The other thing I heard from Tim, which when I got into doing the podcast and also when I got into doing search was a bit of a surprise, which is that many, although not all of the leaders in our business, lead with humility, joy, and intellectual engagement, much more than bravado and a deal-first orientation. Tim talked about that a lot towards the end of our conversation, where he talked about always learning, the contributions he sees for real estate around carbon, his leadership of his team, and his service on the Salk Institute board. I feel a lot of these things myself. It's a blast and a privilege to get to engage deeply in these more strategic and impactful parts of the business. For me, having merged TerraSearch into ZRG Partners and seeing our search business on a broader plane, and I will admit at a fairly mature part of my career, it's indeed not about the next transaction, but it's about that delightful stuff where you get to lean in with the wisdom gained over the years into helping interesting clients solve challenging and exciting business transitions. You'll hear that same engagement through most of these Leading Voices interviews, particularly today's conversation with Tim, who is such a great leader in the business. I hope that you're enjoying the show. As you hear at the end of every podcast episode, please share this episode with a friend, scroll through our archive and find a few episodes that you've not heard before, rate us on your favorite podcast app, and if you want to get in touch, feel free to email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Tim Schoen. Tim Schoen, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. This is our second conversation about life sciences. On the podcast, I interviewed your predecessor at Biomed and now CEO of IQHQ, Alan Gold, back in November of 2020. Obviously, these two years have been incredibly meaningful in your business with continued changes up until today, even with 
kind of a new major law in America for the Inflation Protection Act, which might have something to do with drug prices, too. So we have a lot to talk about. And maybe the best place to start, because I'm going to just drill down in questions, but if you could introduce yourself and your company briefly, and then we'll get rolling into it. Yeah, well, thanks, Matt. Thanks for thanks for having me. I'll try to do my part as uh, part due here of, of life science. But, uh, you know, we've um, got a pretty um, significant franchise. We are the largest owner of uh, life science in the world with a platform that sp- spans two continents, both here in the United States and the UK. And we run about 20 million feet, including development. And we operate in, in all the core markets, the ones that you would expect us to be in life science. Boston, Cambridge, uh, San Diego, San Francisco, Seattle. Uh, we do have one campus in New York, Cambridge, UK, uh, about 45 minutes north of London. And then uh, we added about a million feet in a, in a campus, 22 buildings in, in Boulder, Colorado. So collectively, we serve about 300 clients in those markets, the names you would recognize, the Pfizer's, the Avis, the Takeda's, the Lumina's of the world along with some of the world's leading research institutions, Harvard, MIT, Stanford Health, and then, you know, several tech companies that you would recognize as well, one that has fruit as their logo. And and some of the uh, technology companies, the new EV vehicles, uh, both Lucid, uh, who has the automobile, the Air, and Rivian, the truck company. So we have a combination of the world's leading biotech and technology companies in the portfolio. Uh-huh. How do biotech and technology fit in? And then also, how do you define biotech, which is not what you used to do at your prior job, I think, in medical office and nursing homes, and but it's all a continuum of space. So talk about what defines your part of the space. Yeah, you know, in, ter- in terms of life science, biotech space, you know, we're really focused on the drug research aspect, medical device. There's also agricultural research, in the life sciences arena. And then, you know, I think we, we really have a front row seat to, I think one of the most powerful waves in business today, which is the confluence between technology and science. And, um, you know, you see some of the big tech companies coming in with some of their subsidiaries, but, you know, data sciences, big data, things like that. There's that confluence between mm-hmm. you know, basic research and, and, um, and, and tech. Uh-huh. And the market's off. So I want to talk about that. But with the comment that it seems to me that this market is only growing, it isn't going anywhere. I yeah. read near-term science fiction, and I'm so excited <laughs> about everything that at least science fiction says is going to happen, and it is. So talk about kind of maybe a COVID bounce, and then if there's now a downturn or a correction, and how do you how do you perceive that? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a, a short pithy statement would be, we haven't cured the human condition yet, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, but there really was a COVID bounce. I think if you want to call it that, but, you know, we were sort of known as the other tech, you know, other than, than the big technology companies. And obviously with the pandemic front and center, the last several years, I think that's flipped. People have asked, you know, what's the humanity cost of, of a pandemic. So it's put the science front and center and so there was a lot of investment that came into the space and uh, both into companies and into real estate because people really, you know, they realize that you can't do science and research in your bedroom or in your kitchen. And you really do need the facilities and the research facilities to you know, continue to advance the science. You know, it's a couple of times that this asset class has been tested, you know, mm-hmm. through the great financial crisis and then with COVID. So 
We did see, you know, a lot of capital come into the industry uh, over the last couple of years, both in VC funding and companies that also chose to go the public route. The public route, as you mentioned, the capital markets have been tougher, so we haven't seen as much in the IPO front. But we still continue to see a tremendous amount of VC capital get invested and money raised. Uh, Arch Ventures, for example, just in the last month or so, has raised $3 billion on the back of a of another $2 billion fund that they had raised. So examples of how you know the VC market is still very healthy, mm-hmm. very sticky, and still very invested in this sector. The capital markets will shut off from time to time. And you know, I look back in 08 and 09, there were 18 months where there wasn't any biotech IPO. And then Ironwood made it public back in 2009. Mm-hmm. So we've had periods of time where the capital markets have shut off and, and, and this is no different. But the industry is still strong. You know, the science will work through cycles. There's a tremendous need from not only, you know, new therapies, but larger biotechs or larger pharma that's looking to replace drugs that are coming off patents. So they're continuing to invest in the industry as well. They invest, you know, well over $200 billion a year approaching 225 billion a year and they're you know replacing their pipelines and and research and new therapies and drugs so they're in the process of investing and continuing to invest in the future as they face face a patent cliff that's you know probably 200 billion dollars a year in sales between 2025 and 2030 so there's a tremendous amount of investment in tailwinds and then you know with the Biden administration you've seen a continued investment from the NIH in terms of funding. And then the FDA has been active, keeping up with the new technologies and advancing and improving drugs. Um, Used to be say 30, some drugs a year, they now average close to 50. So they've been very active and making sure that they obviously maintain the safety um, as well as the efficacy of new therapies that get advanced. Uh So what are the headlines about that says there's a slowdown in this market? Again, I will come back to the long-term yeah. viability and excitement of it because I know it's there. Did companies grow too fast? I think you used the word on our call earlier about a barbell of kind of small versus large versus medium companies. Yeah, there's been a little bit of a pause over the over the summer as the capital markets have gotten more difficult. And really, capital markets have been difficult for, say, a year or so. Uh-huh. But we still see the larger companies that you mentioned before, you know, or you mentioned the barbell that I mentioned, so barbell and demand. We're seeing right. on one side the big biotechs that are continuing and big pharma that's continuing to take space. And then the smaller newly formed VC companies in the middle are maybe the companies that were, had made it public or went public in a more favorable environment uh, or the longer funded companies that have been VC backed for a long time. Those companies will have a, have a harder period of time. So the net effect of that is you see a slight pullback in demand, but demand levels that are still above the COVID spike that you just mentioned. Right. But the you know look at the bigger deals that have been done in Boston. I'll use that market as an example. Recently, AstraZeneca just announced you know four hundred and fifty thousand feet that they're taking in Cambridge, in Kendall Square. Uh, we announced Takeda, which is six hundred thousand feet in Kendall Square. Uh, Merck's continued to hire in advance. Sanofi's continued to grow. So you continue to see growth from the bigger companies. And then, you know, the smaller biotech companies that may be taking, you know, 25 to 35,000 feet out the, out the gate. And then the ones in the middle where the slowdown's been, they're waiting for the next data readout, you know, the next sort of milestone uh, before they commit to, you know, additional capital or additional infrastructure. 
Uh-huh. My company, CRG, does a lot of recruiting directly and through our subsidiary TOF group in that space. And I know that volume is somewhat down. One of the comments carefully said is that some of these companies grew ahead of their skis in terms of management capability. So they were growing to just do the science, but they didn't really know how to run a company yet. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's there's obviously a lot of experienced management teams out there, but folks that the layoffs always make the headlines, right? Mm-hmm. But that talent will get recycled into those core markets and end up back with companies that are better funded. And I think that's a good thing longer term for the industry because we do still see, you know, positive employment growth, but it's not quite in the clip that it was. Oh, that's interesting. So therefore employment growth continues, the need for these professionals, they're not going to, they may lose this job, but they're not going to lose their careers given the continued growth of this. And then what's the underhang or overhang of space? And is space a constraint or is there too much space in some places? And then we'll talk about core markets too. Yeah. You might, you might accuse me of talking our own book here, but yeah. to, you know, I'll let the, I'll let the statistics That's speak okay. for themselves. <laughs> but, you know, listen, we're still very, very space constrained in the core markets. I think people are acknowledging a slowdown in some of the demand. But, you know, for example, we track across, you know, our markets, you know, over 12 million square feet of demand that's that's active in the market today. To give you an idea, that's about the same. That's actually higher than we were at the end of 2019, you know, before COVID hit in early 2020. So we still do see a tremendous amount of demand. And when I say that it's resource constrained, on average, the markets I mentioned at the kickoff of our call are about 1% vacant. Hmm. So, you know, those markets are very, very constrained. There's more supply that will be delivered over time, but that'll have that'll deliver over the next two to three years. But when I say that they're constrained, even in this environment, they still are very, very constrained. So that gives you an idea how far in front of the the curve tenants are still getting and, and businesses and, and research firms are still getting to take space in the core models. Talk about key swipes. Talk about work from home. When you say 1% vacant, San Francisco, I, I don't want to know what the number is in San Francisco for office, but everyone's scared of what office is going to mean post-COVID, particularly San Francisco's the question, the biggest question mark market. What are key swipes in your properties as compared to traditional office? There's definitely more flexibility on the business side for the folks that might work in finance or human resources or some other sort of business development function. They probably have some more flexibility, but our labs are as active as they've ever been. And the key swipes that you mentioned, you know, those folks are, are in and they probably make up, you know, 60% of the building. And then there's some more flexibility, I'm sure, for the support workforce. But our buildings are, are much higher occupied than, say, you know, a San Francisco office building that might be, you know, 20% or 25% of what it was traditionally. And look at the backdrop of the industry too. You know, the number of clinical trials that we have today are higher than we had pre-COVID. The number of, of different therapies that are being advanced, you know, was call it 4,000, you know, five years ago, it's now 6,000. Mm-hmm. So the number of, of targets that folks are going after technologies folks are using to address conditions is actually up well over five is up tremendously up 50% over, over the last five years. So the clinical trials are back to where they were. The amount of research that's being done is, is higher than it was and has continued to climb. 
Uh, obviously, the clinical trials were definitely affected over the last couple of years, but they found different ways to uh, advance those trials in the environment we exist today. So, you know, those are the things that are backing up the demand for the research, the demand right. for the space and the infrastructure. If we think about infrastructure, how much has government grown to deal with the demands on it to approve these things or to support these things? Are they with the growth or... Are they the constraint, even maybe worse than spaces? Yeah, they've, they've definitely grown. The FDA has definitely increased its capabilities um, and its ability to prove drugs and the teams that it has in place. You know, the NIH funding has continued to come up not only in research, but on the clinical side. And you've seen the government obviously stockpile, you know, a tremendous amount of vaccines. So the amount of money that's gone to vaccine research has increased but, you know, by and large, the increase in the demand and the demand that we see from, from life science is really coming from private companies, really driven by private companies, particularly in our, in our space or the space that's needed. We, it may be associated with an MIT or a Harvard right. or a Stanford or a Cal, but it's actually being driven by, by funding in the private market, much less than the government, although the government's obviously been very active. But the FDA still could be the bottleneck of getting things approved. So therefore, they may not make it through that process, which has always been a challenge, although they we proved something during COVID that you can move quickly. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually look at the glass half full, I think. You yeah. know, the number used to be, say, 30, 35 a year have, have gone up to 50. But, you know, the FDA has a has an important job too, right, to, to make sure that uh, they protect not only the safety, but the efficacy of what gets approved. And, right. you know, they to do that in a prudent manner. Yeah, and maybe they've learned new muscles because of COVID. So, yeah. so, so let's talk about it. competition isn't the right word, but everyone and their brother two years ago switched their office developments to life science developments. And <laughs> I, maybe they're still delivering that portfolio, but they're not in this business every day. So talk about some of the benefits of being in this business every day, some of the risks of not really understanding this business, and then is there a supply wall coming up that may hurt demand or may yeah. hurt uh, vacancies and stuff? Yeah, there definitely was a lot of headlines about buildings being um, converted from office to lab. You know, we've said before, and I don't mean to make it overly simplistic, but all lab buildings can be office, but not all office buildings can be lab. Mm -hmm. So let me explain that. So, you know, basically the building has to have, and I've used this term a lot, and I'll use a, I use an anatomy analogy, not okay. to be too cheeky, but, you know, you have to start with good bones, right? You have to start out with the right clear heights and the ability to, to, to have the right live loads on the floor. So you have to start out with a good structure and good bones and not all the office buildings have that. So once you start with that, then you add in the robust mechanical, electrical, and plumbing systems. And you're putting that in throughout the building, call that the circulatory system of the building. Mm -hmm. And then you're eventually going to put in the tenant improvements, the lab benches, the fume hoods, you know, some of the specialty rooms. So as a landlord, you really have to make a serious, serious investment and commitment that that building qualifies a purpose-built lab building. Then on top of that, you may decide to do that, but I think this asset class uniquely belongs in a portfolio. One of my favorite things one of our presidents says is that, you know, when you come to into the biomed uh, facility is that you really get 20 million square feet of options. It's not just the 25,000 square feet you're taking mm -hmm. because we have gone deep into those core markets that I mentioned at the top of the, the top of the um, discussion. 
And that I think is really powerful. If you're a, a company, and then not only that, you know, we have 300 professionals that come to work on this asset class every day, right? We've, Matt, we've made the mistakes. We've, we've made, we've learned over, over, over the, you know, 16, 16 years for most of us have done it before that. So over the last, you know, 20 to 25 years, you know, we've learned how to build this stuff the right way and design it the right way. And then not only that support our clients so that they know that they're in a building that's purpose built and they've got a landlord that's used to helping them run mission critical real estate. So, so for us, that's, you know, that's very important. And I think that if I'm on the other side of the table, I'd, I'd want to know those things. So you can always try to convert a building or make an announcement. You're going to convert a building, but you know, we can do it with, with the fact that we have a portfolio so we can program your space efficiently and help our clients program space efficiently. And then we can back it up with the operations, you know, over the five, seven, 10, 15 years that, that you're going to have a lease with us. I'm friends with Bill Stein who runs digital realty. So data center company, and yeah. he's really fond of talking about his team. They're not a real estate group. They're a technology company and they do real estate. So most of his team are more tech people talking to their tenants, serving their tenants, understanding those needs. How about your team? How much of it is specialized folks versus kind of generalist real estate investment folks? Yeah, I'd say they're more specialists over time. For us, example, I'll, I'll, I'll use our facilities team. And you know, we've had people that are used to running hospitals, for mm -hmm. example. Uh, we have one, the head of our facilities actually nationally uh, ran Gillette Stadium for the Patriots uh, and the Kraft family. So, you know, they're used to, you know, running mission critical real estate and that's really important. So we are focused a little bit more on the sticks and the bricks. And I use the word infrastructure. I don't just throw that around, but I, I think that's an important piece of what these companies need. They need the real estate to be the infrastructure that they need to advance their science. And, you know, we've always said this, we can focus on that real estate. We're a little bit different than digital realty where we are serving a specific industry, mm -hmm. but we do focus on the real estate and the design and the efficiencies and the ability to use, make sure the buildings are robust enough for our clients. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, they get to focus on their science, right? So a little bit different than a digital company. They're going to decide how to design their trials, how their research is going to work. You know, we don't get into that um, as much, although, being part of the Blackstone ecosystem, you know, we do have uh, Blackstone Life Sciences, who's actually invested, you know, billions and billions of dollars into the industry. Mm -hmm. So we get to, you know, work with them or or help them and some of their clients, but also, you know, share information back and forth. I, I use the term, I will use a tech term here. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think we've created the killer app here because we are invested you know, with Blackstone in the industry. And then they're also invested in the real estate and the infrastructure. And together that's, you know, pretty powerful. And we can make sure that, uh, you know, we're trying to understand our clients and our science as well, but right. we can also try to service them or, or trends that we see in the industry. So you're getting ahead of where I wanted to be, but let's just go there. So I want to talk about Blackstone and how they acquired you. And one thing we talked about the other day is I always viewed Blackstone as, is buy it, fix it, sell it. Yeah. And they've really changed that model, I think probably because of different capital sources that allow them to be long-term. But but talk about when they bought you, what their goal was, and was their goal always long-term, and then what their ownership or whatever it is now means. Yeah. Well, you said buy it, fix it, sell it. That used to be on their website six years ago. So, right. man, I don't think you're that far off. But 
you know, I would I would modify that a little bit, but I'd say uh, buy it, fix it, build it, buy it, adjust it, build it, uh, however you want to define that. But, you know, they have gone to platforms. I would say that this was always a conviction industry for them. Um, as soon as they got into the real estate and they realized the, the opportunity that was here and, you know, this along with logistics, uh, housing, multifamily, you know, those have been conviction investment themes, uh, but, you know, Obviously, it, we were in a different fund at the time, but you know now we're, you know, and I think this is important for our tenants is that we're in an evergreen fund. Uh, Biomed is in its own fund. We do have the ability to service our investors uh, with Blackstone and our LPs that own us, um, so that they can meet their investment mandates. But the franchise itself is in a long-term investment. It is a platform, much much like the other platforms that Blackstone's created. Um, that's a, that's newer than maybe it was, you know, six, seven years ago, but they are we're really investing in the management teams and the infrastructure, our infrastructure, you know, right. our system and our teams and making sure that we can, can grow and support, you know, the portfolio. And there's tremendous value in that and experience, right? So I, the philosophy has definitely changed in that regard to, you know, building, you know, some of the most robust platforms in the world, whether it be Lincoln Industrial, yep. Biomed and, and Life Science, you know, LiveCore and Multifamily, you know, they've really created some some pretty powerful franchises. And, and talk a little bit more about that, because I am curious, but you've been in public companies. So if you think of public company having long-term forever ownership in a real estate yep. class, they do build an operating platform that's going to persist. Yeah. We had Mark Perel from EQR on the show a couple months ago, and that's what EQR has been for a very, very long time. I don't think of a Blackstone portfolio that way, but in the fund that you're in that is perpetual, then you get to do that, and you are the leader in your space leased by square footage. Yeah, yeah. We're definitely, yeah, on the private side, we're definitely the largest owner. You know, there's been definitely a focus to to create that in, in, in the management teams. You know, you talk about... You know, Mark, they're obviously a blue chip REIT. You know, Mark Perel, a blue chip REIT at EQR. I've been in the public markets for, you know, 20 years, uh, really 23 years, I think. I've done 79 earnings calls. I've been involved with 79 earnings calls. So just one short accounting. Yeah, but who's counting? Um, you know, all the way back to my analyst days. But, you know, I think for us, you know, the the private wrapper, if you will, there's no difference in, in how we manage or service our clients. You know, we've got access to capital. We're fortunate enough. I like to say when we talk to our clients that, you know, we're an international platform with a world-class sponsor. And we get to benefit from those different boots on the grounds in the different locations. We have to leverage, you know, the real estate professionals around the world uh, at Blackstone. So, uh, again, that's that's pretty powerful. But building these platforms and building the management teams you know, it's not just the providence of the REITs anymore, you know, and we get the advantage. There's advantages to everything, but, you know, we have the advantage of being able to come in and focus on the real estate every day, which is the part that, that this team really enjoys. Um, you know, the there's, public markets are fine too, but, you know, the one advantage we have is we're, you know, focused on the real estate and, you know, we've got a great set of investors and, and LPs that are supporting us. So we're not we're not fighting for that capital every day. Right. And let's talk about the same ecosystem for a minute and talk about being in a niche business versus a mainstream business like multifamily or industrial. Do you get the premium price for investor returns? And then also, is there a value add in your rent that you can ask because you're the class A player and you know what you're doing and they have some better comfort 
having someone who knows how to be um, such an institutional uh, owner for them? Yeah, I think, well, there's two things there. I think, listen, we're a great value proposition for our investors because we are going to invest in the real estate. We are going to drive investment in the real estate. What that'll create is the ability to you know, charge the rents that are associated with that. So that's the return for the investors. But we're also providing a service to our clients right. so that they can move in and utilize space and do their research. And as their needs change, they can move out at the end of the lease or, or go on to you know, another facility that we can build for them. I mean, they don't have to have all that capital tied up. But we are able to drive the rents because we're investing heavily in the space. And we're helping our clients get to research quicker, get to the lab, get to the bench, start doing research, and then know that they don't have to have to maintain or continue to update the real estate that they can focus on the research. So, you know, we we can drive rents and, and, and returns because we're investing heavily in the space, mm-hmm. but we're also a value proposition for the clients so they don't have to tie up a bunch of money in real estate. Yeah. So another thing I think of is I if I'm an early stage company, I want to be with the best venture capital firm that I can be because they add value to me, not because of their money, but because of their intelligence and their market knowledge. So I'm going to weather the storm and weather my cycles and my growth path better with them. And I'm wondering if there is the same for you. And I'm going to mash this up with a second question, which kind of incubator space, we work space, shared space in your industry. So talk about how the flexibility of your offerings may get to some of those points. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, we provide space from the 600,000 square foot, you know, single tower to a blue chip all the way down to say 15 or 20,000 feet, maybe even 5,000 feet in some cases, Uh a couple of our properties, more early stage companies. But behind that is in a rip off another term that we talked about through COVID having staying power, you mentioned it, you know, having the staying power through the cycles, but then also the firepower and the ability to continue to invest in the real estate and expand the portfolio and the markets that continue to need the infrastructure. So we have both. And then, you know, in terms of, you know, smaller incubator space, we do have some of that in our portfolio. Uh-huh. We do have a couple of operators actually that do that. You know, one that does it very well, a group called Smart Labs that's based in Boston, but is has a presence on, on both coasts in the United States. And, you know, we've, we've provide services as well, uh, not on an incubator level, but services to our smaller clients that need it in terms of, you know, just helping them design their space working on their programming. We have our facilities, property management, and our development teams that can help out with that. So, you know, those are the things that we focus on, but we don't necessarily focus all the way down to like a really small bench and a real, you know, one of the groups in our portfolio uses the term two people in a molecule, you know, they happen to say two men in a molecule because it rhymes, but two people in a molecule, we don't go down to that level but we do service clients across the spectrum. And then when it gets to the real small incubators, you know, we've even worked with somewhere like UCSD, a great example. We built the center for novel therapeutics on the UCSD campus, 140,000 square foot building. It's got two of the preeminent cancer researchers, Dr. Kipps and Dr. Carson that work at UCSD and they're focused, you know, and their teams are focused on cancer research, but it also has an incubator component to it. So we have a group called Lab Fellows in there that provides some incubator space to some of the smaller startups at the university. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'll jump all the way across uh-huh. to all the way across the pond to 
the UK, where uh, we're on the Babraham Research Institute, um, where there's a lot of small companies and they needed scale-up space. So we helped provide scale-up space so those clients could go from 2,000 to 3,000 feet up to say seven to 12,000 feet, all the way up to 25,000 square feet. And we provided scale-up space on that campus. So those are examples of where there's true basic research, right. both on the West Coast of the United States and in the UK, where we provided space for those smaller companies. Hopefully it gives you an idea and a feel for... Yeah, what does scale-up space mean? And how do you do that? And in your portfolio, does that let you move someone as they quickly grow, hopefully, yeah. to the next space? Yeah. Is that in the lease? Is that to structured, but you are able to be flexible for that? What's the... Yeah, I'll, I'll quote one of our other presidents. There's not one prescription for all that ails. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, you know, let's say, uh, you know, I, I'll use the UK example sure. there where the Babraham Research Institute's been around a long time, been around for decades, advancing biotech research in the UK. They had smaller spaces and smaller tenants. And as they grew and it were successful, they needed space and they used to have to go try to find space in and around Cambridge. Well, with their foresight, uh, with the Babraham Research Campus um, and the gentleman, Derek Jones, who runs that campus, they recognized the need to try to retain people on the campus and needed some capital. So uh, we partnered with them to build two buildings, about 100,000 feet, that were much bigger on the campus than they had traditionally had. They had, say, 5,000 square foot buildings, 10,000 square foot buildings. So we provided bigger buildings for scale-up space so that they could come out of the smaller buildings into a bigger building, more efficient operations. And then you mentioned, Matt, now that tenant that goes to that level, now they might need 50 or 75 or 100,000 feet. Just down the road, we have Granta Park, which is another purpose-built research campus, and that's home to Illumina and Pfizer and Takeda, the, you know, some of the more blue-chip names. So as people grow, uh, Altos, uh, is another one that's that's come to that campus. So you think about the offering, you can, you're in Cambridge and you can move through different campuses as your size and needs grow. Talk about your core markets and the power of those core markets and the markets you got out of and why that was. And yeah. do those core markets then persist in this business? Because I bet there's all kinds of reasons they will. Yeah. Listen, we were in 17 markets or so when, when we went private and you know, I've used the term, you know, there's nothing wrong with Miami, Florida or Providence, Rhode Island or St. Louis, Missouri. Those are great markets and had operated in them in the medical office business previously, but we just didn't see a lot of growth there. So we chose to recycle the capital so that we could put it back into the core markets of San Diego, San Francisco, Boston, Cambridge, in Cambridge, UK. I don't want you to, us to forget about Seattle because that's been a growing market for us, but we chose to recycle the capital back into those markets mm -hmm. and grow there because we could, we could be a more effective team in those markets. They had deeper demand and we could really grow our portfolio offering. So that's the reason we decided to do it. Also, it's the ecosystems that exist, right? And people say, well, what does that mean, an ecosystem? You know, it, you mentioned the medical office days. Back in the medical office days, I'd like to be in the, the shadow of a hospital. Right. You know, now we want to be in the shadow of a research institution or, or researchers that are in the area. So, you know, it starts with the research and the researchers. And then you start with the commercialization of some of the science or maybe taking the science through some 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 type of research and a clinical application. 
and a commercial application. And then you bring, you know, you put a business team around it. Right. So that's the second group you've got. Mm-hmm. So entrepreneurs that are willing to, willing to advance the research outside of one of the institutions. Then you have the venture capitalists that'll help get it funded. And then I would argue we're the fourth leg on that stool in terms of, inf- uh, in terms of the, the, the real estate we provide or the infrastructure and the labs that we provide. If you have those four things, the researchers, the entrepreneurs, the venture capitalists and the infrastructure, that's what exists in those ecosystems. And as that flywheel goes around and around and around, there's more, there's more interest and more demand for that space. Look no further than South San Francisco where Genentech started. Mm-hmm. And then now, you know, we've got the, we've got the next generation of companies and the next generation Again, I'll quote one of our presidents, the children and grandchildren and the great grandchildren of Genentech that have created South San Francisco today, which was Genentech for a long time, then Amgen. Now you have Abbey, Merck, right. cutting edge companies like Denali. Um, so you have Global Blood Therapeutics, I think is there too. Um, I could keep going on and on, but there's, you know, there's a lot more representation. Uh, Eli Lilly's there. All the bigger companies have gravitated there. Towards South San Francisco, yeah. They have to be. And, and you keep quoting presidents. Are these presidents at Blackstone or are these presidents in your company? No, our president. We have an East Coast president, John Birchner, <laughs> and I'll call him out. And a West Coast president, John, or West Coast president, John Birchner, East Coast president, Bill Kane. Uh-huh. Both have been in the business for 20 years and they have just some, you know, some, some go-to lines. So I, uh, you know, maybe you have to get them on one of your, uh, on one of your podcasts because we're, we're lucky. It's almost an embarrassment of riches that we've got, you know, a team that's done this for decades, but um, you know, we've been around in too many meetings together uh, as we talk to prospective clients. So, but I like to give people credit. It's interesting. We all have uh, mantras we use that make things make total sense to us. So yeah, and it helps explain the business. Right. I mean, one, I'll, I'll push back at you a little bit because if you're in those core markets, it's the nature of those core markets that protect them from having to depend totally on you as that landlord because there will be enough of that kind of space in each of those core markets that people have choices so that when they do grow, they can go somewhere else, not just because you're there, but because the others are going to be there, but it will just keep going. Right. But again, I get back to where we're at. We're, you know, 99% occupied and there's a backlog of demand in each of course. market. So even if that moderates a little, which right. it might, and, um, you know, the COVID spike that we saw, we still have, have tremendous amount of demand and capital being raised. And that capital being raised translates to additional space and demand that's needed in the market. So you're right, they can move around. Um but, you know, the researchers, um, you know, build their networks as well in each of these locations, uh, and they have their service providers that they depend on. So, again, just look at the fundamentals. You know, we look at the tailwinds of the industry, which is continued capital and investment in the industry. And then you look at the amount of space and the mm-hmm. that's really on the horizon. And it still, you know, signals that you've got a tremendous amount of demand. We might have to update some facilities over time um, or put some additional investment in the space, which is why the return is attractive. We're willing to make that investment in the space for the second generation or third generation tenant and really drive the returns for our owners, but also, you know, provide the state of the art, state mm-hmm. of the market lab buildings as they're doing their research and their needs change. And, and because there's so much tech here, do, does the space become obsolete quickly? Or, yeah, talk about that. 
You know, not really. I mean, the space doesn't, it takes a tremendous amount of investment up front and conviction when we were talking about redevelopments. I think people really have to have a conviction, but once the investment's in the space, mm-hmm. it's it's very reusable. You know, you it depends on how much chemistry or biology uses in a building, you know, what the actual research is being done. But if you, if you set the zones up correctly and you make that high investment initially and you do it the right way it's reusable for different types of tenants in different areas you can change the zones and benches around over time but you have to really make that investment and design up front and that's where you know we've learned that's the magic of what we do right is that we know how to design the buildings and the zones so that if needs change or you got to reconfigure labs we can do that uh, on each of the floors without too much disruption or too much investment in the capital. Uh-huh. We're going to change subjects in a minute, but the question, do I have to ever have to worry about my neighbors in your buildings? And do people like demand, hey, I don't want to be near someone who does that, either because it's so top secret that maybe there's some guys in trench coats coming to steal from them or that they're boiling up something that might either fumigate or not be cool or I don't know what, but is there... yeah. Or top secret, you don't want adjacent people doing the same stuff. Yeah, the buildings are extremely safe, first of all. Second of all, um, and they're adjacent to a lot of different uses, but they're they're designed um, and they had, you know, you think about COVID, everybody was talking about increasing their air, the, their filtration, their, right. their air filters. All that existed in the labs already. Things did not not leave the lab. The other things, the other thing is is that we don't do a lot of, there's not a lot of research in our buildings. That's that's the top um, BSL labs that are much more deal with like you said, people in trench coats or cars leaving in the middle of the night. There's types of research that are done on purpose-built facilities, you know, either by the government uh, or infectious diseases and things like right. that. Those are not those are not done in our buildings. You know, this is mainly a biology type research or device type research. It's not the high infection or particles or materials that would cause safety concerns for anybody. Uh-huh. That's done somewhere in a very separate location. Fair deal. Okay. Next subject I want to talk about you, but before we talk about you in the time that we have remaining, you're on the board of the Salk Institute. And yeah. so you've been hinting at all these things that are going on in the world and how cool and how interesting they are. Can you blow our minds a little bit with some of the technologies that you see coming? Lifespan may change. Maybe we're going to, I'm not going to live to be 200. I hope not, but talk about what's going on. Yeah. I think there's a couple of cool things. One is plants. All right. Mm -hmm. You're going to think I'm crazy, but you know, let me talk about plants, but I'll back up for a little bit. There's, you also mentioned longevity. You know, I think there's a lot of research being done around, around, you know, human health and longevity. And it's not only about, longevity, that's the wrong word, but it's really the quality of life, right? If you look back over the life expectancy and antibiotics came in and we had the, you know, jump in life expectancy and lifestyle and diet and things have gotten us up. And although unfortunately with drug use and some of the, some of the, um, you know, addictions that people have had, you know, life expectancies come down in the United States, but you know, by and large, we've had life expectancy march up and to the right if it was a graph. Right. And part of that was 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 uh, antibiotics and drugs and things like that to treat conditions, um, to treat chronic conditions. But the researchers today would tell you that it's really about making sure that quality of life. Maybe it extends a little bit, but it's really making sure that the time that you're here that you don't suffer from other some other chronic disease, that you don't get cancer at sixty. Mm-hmm. 
65 and you can live to 80. You know, you may make it to 80, but how do we improve the quality of those 80 years plus or minus? So that's what they'd say, first of all, on longevity. But I think the one thing to me that has really blown my mind is plants and the ability to use plants as a way to reverse climate change. And I think the sulk is at the cusp, at the cutting edge of research when it comes to using plants to become a mechanism to capture carbon Mm. and to put carbon in design plants so that it can put carbon into the ground permanently so that as it decays, it doesn't release that carbon. And I think, you know, there's a lot of research being done around if we can use agriculture that's planted every year, use plants as a, as a carbon capturing device to get carbon out of the air and by, in fact, you know, reduce the temperature of the planet, you know, those are some things that are really tangible that have the ability to change the world. It's, you know, the salt always says it's small by design, but that's the type of research that's being done in the harvesting plants initiative. It's got the promise to reverse, you know, climate change. And, you know, I can't imagine anything that's more powerful than that. It's interesting when I think of a plant, I get a little bit less worried than I think about putting little mirrors in the sky. <laughs> so some of the technologies are scary and some feel kind of safe and a plant, if it sequesters carbon, pretty cool. But the combination of carbon and climate change and then that increasing transmittal of disease and health issues, that's all tied up together. So different subject. And we, yeah. we only have a few minutes, but Leading Voices used to be about career journeys of 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 our guests. And now I have so much to ask about their businesses, but <laughs> how did you get here? What, what got you into real estate? What got you, I know you're a finance guy. So, and so many uh, real estate companies are run by people who came up the finance track. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, listen, I've been in real estate. Uh, I started when in a real estate depression, I came out in the FDIC in the RTC days and people won't even remember what the RTC was. I worked at that, the RTC. The resolution. How old I am. Yeah. The Resolution Trust Corporation resolved the crisis, restored the confidence. And, you know, that was, you know, we had very sick financial institutions in this country. It was caused by real estate and overbuilding in real estate was was one of the reasons. And so I got involved in working out real estate right out of college, went back to grad school. And then I joined, you know, really an emerging sector. The REIT legislation has been around since the 50s or the 60s. But really the modern era of REIT started in the mid 90s, 94, 93, 94 with an upreach structure. And when I joined the industry, you could have fit the whole REIT industry into the market cap of Coca-Cola. And, you know, you think about how it's grown and the public ownership of, of real estate has grown, you know, really grew up in an industry in the REIT industry over the last 25 years as it brought financial sophistication to real estate, it's become its own classification code, its own industry code yep. in the S&P 500, um, and really, really saw a capital-intensive business become much more sophisticated and obviously you know, much more segmented, right? It's not just about multi... You, you said it before, Matt. It's not just about multifamily, industrial, retail, uh, an office, you know, it's really branched into a lot of different types of, of real estate. I was fortunate enough to work, you know, in an office environment in, in the West Coast, uh, a company called Kilroy Realty and um, John Kilroy's company and, and worked for some great executives there and then went on to the healthcare REITs, which hey, were starting- when you were at Kilroy, what did you do? What was your, what was your discipline? 
I was in corporate finance. Mm -hmm. So I started out as a finance guy out of grad school, uh, worked on the debt capital markets, worked on our business planning, acquisition, development, underwriting, and then went over to HCP, now HealthPeak, in an acquisitions role and worked in acquisitions for several years, worked for Paul Gallagher and, and Jay Flaherty. And, you know, there's a, 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 a franchise run by Jay Flaherty, which healthcare REITs were going from being, I'll call them real estate finance companies to real estate operating companies. Mm-hmm. So uh, worked in acquisitions. And then we bought a, uh, a portfolio from a UK REIT called Segro. It's Segro today. It was called Slough States at the time. They had to divest of their US assets. So we bought a $3 billion life science portfolio and tacked it onto what we had and started to grow a life science business. We'd also built buildings at Kilroy back in the early, back in the late 90s. Um, we, we built some lab buildings and we're really in, in the San Diego, Southern California area. And anyway, we bought this franchise, ran this business and grew the portfolio and part of our healthcare continuum. Had you, you mentioned Alan, uh, been a friendly competitor with Alan over time and we competed with Biomed and um, Alan was ready to go on to do the next thing. And so he reached out and had been partners with Blackstone and in a previous life under different investments. So knew, knew the teams there. And then, you know, just love this business. You know, we love the, love being in, in life science and, you know, growing up in and around the business and the opportunity to step up to a, a franchise that was on both coasts and in the UK was a really exciting opportunity. And then being able to grow it in these markets and being backed by a sponsor who had the capital and conviction was really the excitement. So at HCP, I skipped over one thing. I did go back to the finance side. I did become a CFO. So I went right. back to finance after acquisitions and running businesses. So think I think, Matt, I was a better operating partner with, <laughs> with, with folks because I wasn't just a, a, you know, a, a finance or accounting person. Mm-hmm. I, I could empathize with my operating partners because right. um, I've been there. And then, um, you know, it was really in an operations and a CFO role at, at, at HCP and HealthPeak. And then had the opportunity to be a CEO here. And, you know, six, six and a half years later, I'm still in the industry. Yeah, you got to do it. And one thing I don't hear as often is acquisitions to CFO to CEO. I, the CFOs usually don't do the acquisition stint. So you do get into investments more deeply and hands-on than someone's not just looking at the numbers because CFOs look at more than the numbers, but that's a great pathway. Yeah. The financial, the financing discipline is a capital intensive business. So having the finance discipline and then being able to be really lucky to be able to work in acquisitions and underwriting, and then think about your underwriting, right? You do your underwriting day one, Mm -hmm. you know, and then you flip the page and it's the budget day two, and then having to live with it. So, you know, I think that was, that discipline was important, but also really got to do acquisitions and development underwriting. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to work with a couple of firms that were very, very good at development Mm -hmm. and, learned how to manage that risk and the moving pieces associated with that and think about what it meant to a balance sheet when you took on that type of risk and how much you should do in each each segment. So that financial discipline in a capital intensive business, I think is, I've been fortunate. And then actually being out and, and doing deals and transactions and thinking about the strategic benefit, not just how accretive, dilutive or what the returns were gonna be, but what that real estate could mean to the portfolio you have to have both sides of it. I have both sides of my brain that can fight it out when we're looking at something. <laughs> well, looking at the portfolio side of it and not just saying, hey, there's a creative acquisition, let's do it, 
but wow, yeah. this really solidifies our position in wherever it is, or changes what our position could look like, or if someone else gets in there and starts building their portfolio, we're not there anymore. What's the difference between doing this when you were at the prior company and you were, uh, life sciences was a piece of it. You've talked so yeah. much about specialization here. I'm going to bet that the specialization's really been accretive itself. Yeah, this asset class has matured for sure. That was one of the things. And but being able to run a vertical within a bigger company and being able to run that that P and L, if you will, about what the expectations and growth and the team and I had the responsibility to bring that in for the rest of the company when we were at HCP. But you really got a chance to run a vertical business uh, and be responsible for it. We didn't have to fight for our cost of capital. We were a part of a piece that created a cost of capital, right. but you know, we could focus on the P and L, the business and the investment of the business and driving income growth. So I think that, that part was, was great. And then, you know, being able to do it full-time with one asset class and then being able to do it in the best markets and then being able to have the focus and the ability to go deeper in each of those markets and build a pipeline for a way to grow in each of those markets that didn't happen overnight. It's taken us years to do that, but you know we're now starting to see the dividends of that. Um, but being involved in a company before and running a PNL was was um, was tremendously helpful before you stepped into a chair like this. Yeah, I bet. And I'm also thinking that you're dealing with a brain trust that speaks very directly and strategically, and you get immediate feedback, not market feedback. And I would yeah. think putting your head together with those folks would be tremendously uh, a tremendous growth experience and the ability yeah. to strategically think about a business in a very different way. Matt, to sit across the table from people that have a PhD in real estate, yeah, it's pretty fun yeah, <laughs> and challenging. You got to uh -huh. be on your toes. You got to be on your toes, but uh, but it also has the you know the good parts, like you say, the connectivity and the the connection between asset classes and the ability to think about the highest and best use for an asset. And um, ultimately the ones that, you know, the benefit are the, are, are the investors and the, you know, the pension funds and the, and really the beneficiaries of these pension funds that, you know, invest yep. with folks like a Blackstone. Yeah. Anything we're missing in this conversation that our listeners need to know about the kind of business you're in? What if, haven't we talked about in terms of life science, real estate that people should really hear? You know, I just think that it's, you know, people think that, you know, it's because of the pandemic, we've gone through this period of time and now sort of the the best part of the industry has passed. Uh, you know, I think the best days are ahead, you know, in terms of in terms of the research that'll come out, uh, the therapies that will come out. You know, the great news is, is that of the 6,000 targets I mentioned earlier, that's up from 4,000 in 2016. Of those 6,000, two-thirds of those matter in small entrepreneurial companies. So I think that's super exciting that there's there's groups of management teams and researchers that have a vocation around a certain type of research, whether it be oncology or gastroenterology or diabetes. You know, there's different, there's folks that are very focused, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, I can go on and on, but mm -hmm. researchers that are very focused in small companies that that think they've got you know, a way to treat these ailments. It just takes tremendous comfort in the fact that that pipeline is bigger and that, 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 that's humanity's pipeline, right? It that's, is. that's humanity's pipeline. And that's, you know, in hope that, you know, we continue to have graduates go into these STEM, these STEM careers and really the life science industry and the ecosystem and the larger ecosystem. And I'll put the government in that as well 
you know, all the way through in the United States, it really is a jewel of the United States economy in a way that's growing, providing jobs. It's primarily doing it with private capital and infrastructure, creating an unbelievable societal benefit. So, you know, it's a, again, that's that's what gets me excited about the industry. Sure. You know, I get to run real estate day to day, but this is really what gets you excited about coming to work because, you know, you've got this pipeline behind you of research that's being done that's going to make a difference. And, you know, being able to provide the space in which that research is done is tremendously rewarding for us and our team. It's got to be, and it's interesting, I what you're describing is a very optimistic view and a view where our country's a leader and that really matters. And, you know, a little bit more, you know, tongue in cheek, you know, we are getting ready to kick off football season here. So hopefully the, hopefully some researcher out there can find a way for the Minnesota Vikings to finally be a Super Bowl champion. But, you know, that's just selfish on my part. That's so. a fair deal. Um, last question on leading voices is your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business. You know, this is this is such an exciting business and, and and such a growing asset class. You're right on the next. I've been in it for 30 years. The next 30 years, the refinement of the processes. I think the ability to build buildings more environmentally sound yep. in a better way. We're right at the cusp of that. We're starting to put in renewable energy and hosted solar and more sustainable development practices, you know, incorporating that into real estate and being coming into, you know, a capital intensive business, better ways to do it, better financial financial models, deeper capital markets. You know, it's just an unbelievable place to make a career and real estate is tangible. You get to go out and see it. You get to go out and see the buildings and the designs and the aspects and the communities. And you get to be involved in the communities in which you operate. You know, fortunately, we've gone down to six of them, but being able to get involved in the communities in in which your buildings sit or your asset classes sit, you know, the connectivity you have across this country is amazing. It feels like a huge industry. I will tell you that real estate is a club. Totally true. so make sure that how you operate and how you carry yourself in this business, you will run into people over and over and over again. And, you know, get in here, get in, get in the club. You know, you've got a, a growing industry and a need for real estate in a lot of different ways from, from homes to, to sheds and logistics, repurposing malls and real estate needs are going to change over time too. So there's a lot of innovation that happens, not only in development and development practices, but also the uses of real estate and how we think about real estate, get involved with some of the practices. Like, you know, I'll use the Fisher center up at Cal, for example, and Ken Rosen's group, you know, get involved with the different policies and urban planning and those groups like that, because there's a tremendous amount of learn. I am humbled every day about the wide set of skill sets it takes to run a real estate company. And, 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 you know, we're fortunate to have a really good group of of successful professionals here. I totally agree. The reason we're doing leading voices is we are trying to get people to join the club, whether they come into life sciences, where they come into apartment business, where they do residential, whether they do office, whatever that's going to become, whether it's retail, industrial, it's a great business and we're going to change our cities. And one of the two guests ago was Sarah Neff, also a prior Kilroy uh, person who ran sustainability there and now does it lend lease. And your comments are 100%. If you're going to build a building, you're going to build it right now. We better. Yeah, we're going to do it in a very sustainable way. And it's uh, anyway, those are some of the things that make it interesting for the next generation. Like you said, our cities are going to be different. The way we work is different. What happens to the future of office? It's an exciting time 
exciting time in real estate. And, you know, you, you can never, you can never stop learning. I've been fortunate enough to been in it. And I went from finance, Matt, into real estate because it was tangible. Right. I could go see the buildings. I could see the communities and real estate affords you that opportunity. Hey, Tim, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.